Nicholas Royal is Professor Emeritus of English at the University of Sussex, where he has been based since 1999. He is a managing editor of the Oxford Literary Review and director of Quick Fictions. He has published many books, including The Uncanny, Veering, A Theory of Literature, and Mother, A Memoir. He is co-author with Andrew Bennett of An Introduction to Literature, Criticism, and Theory. His latest book, David Bowie, Enid Blyton, and the Sun Machine is due to be published in November 2023. Nicholas Royal, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you for having me. So you're a writer of such varied works from your novels and your short stories and your critical writing about literature that's gone into several editions that you've co-authored as well. And so when selecting a passage, it must be quite hard to pick something that's representative. And so you've selected Mother, a Memoir to set up the passage you're going to share with us. Yes. Thank you, Mia. The passage is from this book, Mother, a Memoir. This funny looking guy here is me about 40 odd years ago, my brother, my parents and cat and dog. And the book is about my mother who was a nurse. That was her principal occupation. And she died in 2003. She had Alzheimer's. And so for the final years of her life, she was really incapable of any sustained conversation. And it was a very upsetting and difficult period. And when she died, I was grief struck and I felt a profound and immediate desire to write about my mother. But of course, the desire to write, the sort of mechanisms behind writing are not predictable or within one's control. So in fact, it was nearly 15 years before I did finally write about my mother. And when I did start, it just all came out in a fairly sort of torrential manner. So the book is divided into really quite short sections. And the first section is called pre-word. So not preface, not foreword, but pre-word. Partly because I want to try to foreground the extent to which my mother, an extraordinarily sort of mercurial person, was terribly interested in words, but she was also much faster than language. And I, I wanted to capture something of that from the beginning, really. So this is the opening of the book, pre-word. In my mind's eye, she is sitting at the circular white formica top table in the corner. Morning sunlight fills the kitchen. She has a cup of milky Nescafe gold blend and is smoking a purple silk cut. She is dressed for comfort in floral bronze and brown blouse and blue jumper with light grey slacks and blue slippers. She is absorbed in a crossword, the times, but not oblivious. She does what always takes me aback. She reads out one of the clues, as if I would know the answer. Her gift for crosswords is alien to me. I get stuck at the first ambiguity or double meaning. Whereas she sweeps through all illusions, allusions, red herrings and anagrams and is done most days by lunchtime. But her fondness for crossword puzzles is inseparable from my interest in words, where they come from, what they might be doing. Earliest recorded use of In My Mind's Eye, Shakespeare's Hamlet, around 1599, referring to the ghost. My mother died years. What has induced me to write about her after all this time remains mysterious to me. It is connected to the climate crisis. As the natural historian David Attenborough says, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. In ways I cannot pretend to fathom, I have found that writing about my mother is bound up with writing about Mother Nature and Mother Earth. And no doubt it has to do also with my own aging and the buried life of mourning, the strange timetables of realization and loss. A memoir is a written record of a person's knowledge of events or of a person's own experiences, a record of events written by a person having intimate knowledge of them and based on personal observation, so the dictionaries tell us. But this memoir of my mother makes no attempt at a comprehensive record. It reveals very little about her early life or adolescence, friends and lovers, her education, travel, work. It doesn't offer any sort of rounded picture. It seems less a record of events 
than a grappling with what escapes words, not just love and loss, but fire and air and water and earth, smell and music, voice and touch. But I can imagine your mother beyond pinning her down with language. And I think it's so important, you know, we are the stories we tell ourselves, we are the stories that others tell about us. It's very interesting, those who leave a light footprint because their life as your mother was a caregiver, a nurse, someone who was in, in service to others. It's like Mother Earth who doesn't ask for very much, but is continually supporting the lives of others. I think that's right. Yes. When my mother died in 2003 and I wanted to write something immediately, I was also at the time rereading Wordsworth's great epic poem, The Prelude. And I was reading around it. So I was reading some of the essays, critical essays. And Wordsworth's poem is subtitled The Growth of a Poet's Mind. And it's really the first and perhaps still the greatest autobiographical poem in English on an epic scale. And one of the curious things about The Prelude, which I suppose I was prompted to think about in particular by reading an essay by the feminist critic Mary Jacobus, came at a moment in her essay where she is reflecting on Wordsworth and on other writers, including Rousseau and Augustine, in the context of autobiography. And she says, autobiography seems to begin with a missing mother. And one of the great ironies of the prelude, it's thousands and thousands of lines long, is that Wordsworth's mother only appears in two lines. So although he refers to his mother as the anchor of his being, she has this extraordinarily pivotal, central, fundamental place. And yet she only gets two lines in the poem. And I know that from the very beginning, you also have a deep fascination in telepathy. And it makes me think about the importance of those invisible spaces. As you talk about Mother Nature, it might be the wind that upholds the wings of the bird. But without it, it's what keeps everything going or the air we breathe or the telepathy and the creativity and the imagination and writing. You know, where do the ideas come from? But it's that kind of nurturing, dreaming space that maybe was, I don't know if you want to say that in your mother's case, that she provided this kind of soil and air, but maybe, again, not insisting on, you know, calling attention to herself. Yes, she was an extraordinarily giving person. She was, as I said, a nurse. She was a carer. She cared for everybody, really. And she cared also for non-human life. So she was a carer in that more widespread sense, too. Her garden was very important to her and animals other than humans. But uh, yes, I mean, telepathy is certainly something which remains a kind of subject of fascination to me. And it goes back to my first book, Telepathy in Literature, which I was writing at the end of the 1980s. I'm still writing about it. There's a conference next month on ethics, consciousness and literature, for which I plan to think a little bit more about this topic, because telepathy is never stable for me. Telepathy today is not what it was when the word was invented in 1882. And the ways in which I think we're invited to think about it now, especially in the context of teletechnology and all sorts of advances in neuroscience is inevitably quite different from the way in which Wolf, for example, was writing about it in the 1920s. But telepathy is partly fascinating to me because however one thinks about it, it seems to involve a paradox, which consists in the sense, on the one hand, of something perhaps erotic or romantic, something promising of a connectivity that goes beyond anything traditional or recognisable through the communication at a distance of minds, telepathos. And yet, at the same time, the notion of telepathy, and I think this was clear from its very first usage by Frederick Myers in 1882, telepathy is a kind of break in consciousness. It's a kind of crisis of subjectivity. If there is some kind of telepathy, where do I begin? Where do I end? What is an I? These questions are, I think, inevitable questions that arise in thinking about telepathy. 
It's so true. And it makes me think, again, bringing it back to the natural world where there is a lot of cooperation. And of course, there's competition in that Darwinian concept, but there's also a lot of cooperation and not thinking just of oneself. There's this kind of collective, because if you destroy the environment that you are destroyed, but we now in the post-industrial era, we think, oh, we can just remodel everything and our environment to do with as we please. And so telepathy is this kind of thing. I'm a big believer in the importance of intuition in the arts and improvisation in the arts. It's improvisational and creative, but it's also, you know, very intentful. There's a lot of intention. It's just moving very quickly. So we just can't see it. And it's a little bit like that with telepathy, or if you want it related to wireless technology, there are things being transmitted. We just, at such speeds, we just can't hold fast to it and make it stay Mm. still. I think that's right. Yes. And in one way, I just sort of perhaps go back to something you said at the beginning there about competition. One of the projects that I've been involved in recently has been a kind of pandemic diary, a sort of plague journal. We we don't know what to call it, actually, but I'm writing it with a friend called Timothy Morton, who's a philosopher in Houston. And he wrote it over a period of two years, and it was a very intense and in some ways absurdly verbose project because it's ended up at something like 250,000 words. So we're not sure what we're going to do with it, really. But the word competition, we're about to publish an extract of the diary in the Oxford Literary Review. And I noticed that we talk about the word competition and we talk about the Latin kind of makeup of that word and think about it not just in terms of something like rivalry, but more literally in terms of seeking together. So kind of looking together, a seeking together. And that's something which interests me passionately. I'm very interested in collaboration, working with others on a particular project, on a particular idea, whether it's in teaching or writing or whatever. I do want to go into your introduction to literature, criticism and theory that you've co-authored, and it's gone into several editions with Andrew Bennett. But just staying on that a moment on language and how do you think that the English language in particular and its grammar has influenced your thinking about the world? Yes. Well, my competence as a linguist is absolutely terrible. I mean, I don't seem to be able to learn other languages. I, you know, I studied French. I've translated Jacques Derrida and, and Hélène Sixer and Jean-François Lille with great pain, great difficulty and lots of help from friends. I'm not able really to read other languages. I spent five years living, teaching in Finland. Finnish, of course, is a sort of notoriously challenging language, but I did my best. I did my best, but I got nowhere really. So I don't know. I feel in a strange way as if my whole life has been condemned to this little space called English. And at the same time, English seems to me to be an extraordinary and magical language. And one of my great concerns and I suppose a kind of source of dismay over the last few years has been the sense that English is dying out as a university subject. And that's a good thing. It should. And this is something which the spirit of that idea is one that obviously has complex dimensions and a range of different heterogeneous sources, causes, or what have you. Some of them laudable, such as decolonizing the curriculum, and some of them not at all laudable, which I think are more ideological elements of a kind of calculated degradation or destruction of the humanities, insofar as the humanities is a space for imaginative and creative endeavor and curiosity. So the idea of English as something which should, as it were, die away, I think is madness. You know, on the contrary, for me, we've hardly begun to think about English. We've hardly begun to read it or write it. And obviously there is a fair collection of texts that we can go to, to be amazed by what English can do. But it seems to me that English is an extraordinary space of promise and possibility still. 
It's always so fascinating, the tool with which we most commonly, of all the tools that we have for understanding, language seems to be one, particularly for ideas, it helps us understand. At the same time, it is that tool. And once you have a, a name for something, to some extent, it helps you understand. At the same time, you can be blinded by the wall of language being pulled over your eyes. And once you know the name for something, you no longer see it. And I was having, you know, I'm in Paris here, and it was just about the English language, which I think is a very fertile soil and very flexible. And this poet, psychoanalyst said to me, he says, but it's such a pity that you don't have, you know, the genders in your language. It seems like a real shame what you lose. And so it's hard to, when you learn these gendering of language, you know, what are we missing? This is like a sauce, a flavoring that he said, oh, it's a pity you don't have it with everything that English has. So it's really hard to know and to pick apart how language just informs our understanding of the world. And as you reflect so much, you addressed right there at the beginning, pre-language, pre-words. If you had to go through life with the other communicative skills of, say, animals, uh, how would, it's very hard. I think you've pictured this in your novels about, would you say it's about bird watching? It's a little bit different. It's not exactly about the subject. But as you imagine yourself into these creative spaces, how would you survive if you were stripped of human language? I don't think we would. You know, period. Language, of course, I'd be very keen to emphasize that it's not something that is ever simply an instrument, a tool, and it's not something that we're ever fully in control of. And those two observations for me are really fundamental and I think inexhaustibly significant in trying to get people, readers, students, everybody to kind of acknowledge those two facts and the consequences, the effects of that knowledge. But one of the effects would be that we don't really know what reading is. We don't really know how to read. We don't really know what language is. Language is not something that you can possess. You don't appropriate it. In fact, you know, what makes me write, what makes, I think, people write has to be at some level a sense that they cannot possess language, that language is not appropriable. And so language always involves thinking about what is other to it. And we go on, I think, learning more and more about non-human languages, the language that one might associate with crows, for example, or dogs or whatever it might be. Of course, each creature is singular and I think calls to be respected in its singularity. But in each case, it's a question of reckoning with something which can't be appropriated. So there's this otherness is something which the more we can acknowledge it and think about it, it seems to me, the better chance we have of moving away from the kind of anthropocentric thinking that has got us into where we are now. Indeed. And there are these moments where we can communicate across species. You just mentioned crows there. And I recall one Christmas I was walking with my husband and there was this very large crow on top of a garbage and it was eating. And crows or animals don't like to be looked at when they're eating, particularly not crows. And he was just teasing and he started imitating. And the crow looked at him just like, are you looking at me? Are like, you teasing me? You didn't like to be mocked. And then put down its food flew up in the sky, was circling in the sky, calling out. I didn't know, was it calling other crows or what? Then landed on the eaves of a church and was looking for something there and then flew above us, making sure that we didn't go away, and then dropped this thing down the ground. I thought it was a bit of old hay. It was a corpse of a pigeon. And in this moment, I understood that the crow was trying to tell us something. And it was this, well, crows are very smart, as we know, but that's a story there. And it was mm. saying, I'm master of this domain and not to be toyed with. I just thought I would interject that. I thought that was just No, so that's, that's great. I mean, one of the things when you originally mentioned this idea of the creative process, one of the things that struck me about the word process is that it can mean narrative. And I think, you know, storytelling is such a richly productive aspect of your focus and what you're doing. And of course, for me in, in writing as well. Yeah. 
Yes. And so I want to discuss Introduction to Literature, Criticism and Theory, which is it in its sixth edition? I don't know how many. When you say edition, sometimes that's like a new book cover, but these are actually additional chapters and rewrites of the existing chapters. So just tell us about the conception and how it has evolved over the years. Well, it started in the early 1990s when I was living in Finland. I was teaching at the University of Tampere and I had a colleague from England, Andrew Bennett. He recently arrived and we thought we would try to create a new curriculum for undergraduates at the University of Tampere in the English department, philology as it was called. And so we came up with this group of lectures. I think there were 20 maybe of these lectures and we delivered them over a couple of terms and we delivered them in the way that, of course, you have to in, in certain situations where you take it in turns to, to write one of the lectures. So we were alternating and we ended up with 22 chapters or something. And we thought, well, maybe this is a book. Maybe this is an introduction to literature, criticism and theory. And started there. And it first, initially, it was 24 chapters. And it came out in 1995, I think. And it had a funny Glenn Baxter cartoon on the cover. And it was quite slender. And the publishers loved it. And apparently, so did other academics and so did students. And so we were asked to do a second edition. And, you know, it hasn't stopped. But with each new edition, we have not just revised everything that we've written and updated all of the bibliographies and all the rest of it, further reading and so forth, but we have also supplemented it with new chapters. So the edition that is coming out next month is uh, the sixth edition has 41 chapters and it's going to be 520 pages long. So it's become a very substantial book. But we hope, because we spent two years creating this new iteration, and we've added four new chapters. There's a chapter called Literature, because we decided that actually that's something that probably now needs to be addressed in its own right. You know, why is it important to study literature? What is literature anyway? There's a chapter called Loss, uh, a chapter called Human, and a chapter called Migrant. And then all of the other chapters have been reworked because I think more than with any preceding editions, since the fifth edition in 2016, so much has changed. You know, so many new things to take into account, not only within the university, within literary studies, but in terms of the wider world, politically, ideologically, environmentally, and so on. Hello, Dr. Royal. So obviously being taught English is a subject near and dear to my heart. Um, to my major is creative writing. And I'm fascinated by the idea of how these new theories and this critical work is generated. And I'm curious if you find some of these new ideas sort of coming up through this wordless communication and these themes present in your narrative work and how that might inform your literary criticism and your literary theory. Thank you very much. So are you asking me to try to say something about the kind of wordlessness? <laughs> yeah, I guess to, to rephrase, I'm interested in how a lot of the themes present in your narrative work, this, this wordless communication or this telepathy, this sort of underlying, less tangible element of your narrative work, how that might come through in teaching literary theory and criticism. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's an enormously complicated, richly interesting question. And I'm not sure how best to go at it, except maybe I could say something about that in relation to the book that I've just completed, which is called David Bowie, Enid Blyton and the Sun Machine. And this is a book which I started writing during lockdown. And so in some ways, it's a kind of pandemic memoir. But it's also a book which I wrote while dealing with really quite major financial difficulties within the university. And the sort of, in many ways, very painful, for me, painful negotiation of, is it time for me to leave the university? Should I take voluntary severance? 
So it's like volunteering to have your head cut off. I mean, there's something violent and strange about this phrase, voluntary severance. But this was a scheme that the university had put in place and was because they're in such financial difficulties, not just my university, but universities across the UK. And I chose to take voluntary severance with a heavy heart in many ways. But one of the sort of compensatory thoughts that I had was about the fact that when academics end their careers, generally speaking, they're never asked to give a final lecture or to kind of attempt to sum up what they've learned or what they've understood or what they've most appreciated or what they've been most moved by in their years of teaching. And I thought, I'd like to write that lecture. So the book is in part, it's not just one lecture. In fact, it ends up being eight lectures about saying goodbye, kind of process of saying goodbye, but against the backdrop of the pandemic. And you know, during the pandemic, I have two young sons who at the time were five and eight. And quite unexpectedly, they became deeply interested in Enid Blyton and especially in the famous five. I know that the famous five is not a major text in the United States. And it's one of the strange anomalies of 20th century culture that a woman whose book sold 600 million copies is not really known at all in the United States. But of course, she is translated into dozens of languages and well known across the rest of the world. But The Famous Five was the book of the 21 or 22 volumes that my wife and I ended up reading aloud to our children during lockdown for hours every day. And it was kind of driving us mad. It was a joy in a way, but it was also kind of crazy. And in the end, we got the audio book of Jan Francis reading The Famous Five books as well. So it was a kind of strange polyphony of readings, but everybody by about seven o'clock in the evening was completely shattered and went to bed apart from me. And I went downstairs to the kitchen and sat and listened to David Bowie. Okay. So these two things were not intended to have anything to do with each other. And I suppose one of the first things I'd want to say in answer to your question is the creative, as we're talking about it, is essentially to do with the unforeseeable. I think it's so much to do with chance, with what you don't see coming and what turns out or what falls, what befalls. And I didn't intend to write this book, but I found myself writing a book about David Bowie and Enid Blyton, who don't have anything to do with each other. They really don't. I mean, it's a mystifying juxtaposition, except that at some point quite early on in my research on these two figures, I realized that they both are crucially linked to a small town in Kent called Beckenham. So Enid Blyton spent the first 19 years of her life more or less in Beckenham. And David Bowie grew up in Bromley and Beckenham is part of Bromley. And when he made his breakthrough in his music, it was in Beckenham. And it was through, in particular, through a thing called the Beckenham Arts Lab which he ran out of a pub on Beckenham High Street. And there's a great song, it's called Memory of a Free Festival. And it's a song about a concert that he organised in Beckenham in August 1969, the same weekend by chance of Woodstock. But he wrote this song as a song about that concert. And in August 1969, also his father died just 10 days or so before the concert. And his funeral took place days before. So the song that Bowie wrote is, I think, deeply resonant of the death of his father, as well as about the concert itself. And it's an extraordinary song about the end of the 1960s as well, I think. There's a sort of critical consensus that it's with this song that Bowie really started coming into his own. And if you listen to the song, it's the seven-minute version on the album, David Bowie which is now usually called Space Oddity, I think. It's a song that divides into two parts. And the, the first part is about the concert or something like a concert. And the second part is just a kind of chorus. The sun machine is coming down 
and we're going to have a party. And it's kind of demonic. It's an extraordinary refrain, which really it's hypnotic. It's mesmerizing. And I found myself trying to think about this idea of a sun machine. What is a sun machine? How might we describe a sun machine? What do we feel about the idea of a sun machine? Something affirmative, but strange that is arriving, that's coming down and that we're going to celebrate. We're going to have a party. So, you know, the sun in the book is in part an attempt to think about what, what music does to me or what music might do to people more generally. And that's another key way, I suppose, in which I'm interested in the wordless, the power of listening, the power of music, the capacity that music has to transport and to transform, but also the power of music. And this is something that David Bowie realized very early on, I think, the power of music in its links with memory. So the relationship between music and mourning, but also the way in which our memories of our lives are bound up with music and how listening to music can be like opening a portal into the past and into particular ways of thinking about memory. So one of the key moments in the writing of this text for me, which I had off in some little box in my mind, I hadn't thought about it for years and years, but my mother once said to me, your grandmother had an affair with Enid Blyton. And when she said that, when I was in my 20s, I didn't ask any questions. I had no interest. So why didn't I ask her for more details? But I didn't, right? And so I just had this jewel that had been disinterred in the process of writing about my relationship to Enid Blyton's famous five books. When I was a boy, writing about my father, writing about my mother, and then this memory. And my grandmother was a children's illustrator, and she illustrated a few of Enid Blyton's books, I mean, books about fairies. And she was a very gifted painter who died before I was born, so I never met her. But the book ends up being, in part, a book about my grandmother, whom I never met. So again, that sort of sense of the unforeseeable. I've spoken for far too long, but that's an attempt to respond to that very rich and interesting question. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Hi, this is Indigo, the student co-host for this episode. I want to step away from the interview for a moment to share a story inspired by the wordless. Wordless stories show themselves when we are forced to remember or say goodbye. Remembering is a push and pull of memory and coincidence. And I feel like a conspiracy theorist, looking back over a lifetime of events, pulling together stories formed by coincidental fragments. The Avett Brothers came on with the engine, the perfect space off their album, I and Love and You. It took me by surprise. I don't think I expected 19-year-old Acacia to listen to them anymore. This was the background music for the best of friends. Music for lying on her mom's kitchen floor or planning our wedding and how many kids we were going to have. We were going to have two, one boy and one girl, once we got older, of course. Ideally, they would be twins, but you can't plan for everything. I wondered if Acacia was thinking about the same stuff. The song hit the part that we used to wait for, where the piano picks up and the singer goes, okay, part two, now clear the house. And we jump up and have a dance party. We moved to Portland at the same time after high school. Not to make it sound like we planned it, Portland is just where everything is and where you're supposed to go after graduating from a rural school in Oregon. It was good to see her again. I felt a pang at the memory of moving at the end of elementary school. The opening line to the perfect space is, I want to have friends. And I made some new friends eventually. But when we moved back, my old friends and I were different people. I listened to it again a couple nights ago. My friend Caleb and I recently said I love you, which I think takes men way too long. I know it does for me. He told me one of his friends back home likes the Avett brothers. He thinks they went to a concert together. I hope he feels happy here, and I hope he doesn't miss his friends too much. Acacia tapped the steering wheel to the music. My abuela, my grandmother, did the same thing when I played the Avett brothers for her. Mosa hermosa, beautiful voice, she said. She hummed along and echoed the words she understood. When the song finished, 
I tried to translate my favorite lyrics. I couldn't remember all the right words, but she put her hand on mine. Now, back to the interview. So through this, you've described several connections to your own life, especially conversations with your mother related to your grandmother and also the death of David Bowie's father, this very significant moment that drove you to make this connection to his hometown. How did you find writing this more exterior autobiography that sort of went into the cultural consciousness? What similarities and differences did you find between writing a more interior memoir like Mother? Yeah, I suppose it was in some ways a very different project. Enid Blyton is not somebody I ever imagined writing about. She's a figure of some controversy. Nobody would say that Enid Blyton's books are politically correct, but she's an extraordinarily good storyteller. And I found myself getting very interested, I suppose, in popular culture, in the whole enigma of a woman whose output was just astonishing. I mean, there was one year in which Enid Blyton published 55 books. That's more than a book a week. I mean, we're dealing with an amazingly productive figure who I looked at critical accounts of Blyton. And the same with Bowie, actually. Bowie is somebody who, especially in the last five years, has really moved into the domain of intellectual seriousness. You know, the Cambridge companion to David Bowie is coming next year. He's kind of arrived as a major thinker as well as singer and songwriter. So there was a lot for me to read and research on Bowie as well. And I've been by no means exhaustive either with Blyton or Bowie. But one of the things that I suppose I found was that it's almost like it doesn't matter how alien to yourself, how different to your own life or experience your subject is, it will be autobiographical. And the way in which it is autobiographical it seems to me, is not foreseeable. It's not something that you calculate or you work out in advance. It's something that happens in the process, the creative process. It's so interesting. And I know you founded, in fact, the Center for Creative and Critical Thought. And there is this question, some people are skeptical whether you can teach creativity. You mentioned the prodigious talents of Enid Blyton and David Bowie. I mean, both in their Maybe genius might be applied to them, or at least a great aptitude and this gift of storytelling. And they're very talented storytellers and there are different domains. So I've always wondered about that. It's not just having perfect knowledge about things. You talk about the unforeseeable is giving rise to creativity. Somehow it's about, in my opinion, maybe not knowing everything so that you have to make up stories to fill in the spaces where one lacks knowledge. Yes, absolutely. I think that's so true. I also hope desperately that it's true because I've never been able to think, well, I'm now going to devote 10 years to working on a particular topic or a particular author. I just don't work like that. The next project, which I'm hoping to get started on, I wish I could start tomorrow, is a detective novel or some kind of thriller some sort of mystery. And this is alien territory for me because I know next to nothing about detective fiction. I don't really watch it on TV. I've read a few novels down the years and I've thought, well, okay, I better read some. So I've read a P.D. James, an Agatha Christie and Richard Osman. Yesterday, I just finished my first Patricia Highsmith and I'm going to read maybe one or two more. And then really from a position of ignorance and incompetence, I'm going to start trying to write my own. And yet you've written books that have elements of the thriller, but I'm guessing you're going more into that full on, maybe for readers who expect, I don't know how full on, but you could say also Patricia Highsmith, who I love and manages to be so creepy and psychological and make you feel things without really saying it. Another one, gosh, the killer inside me, Jim Thompson. He's another one. He really gets you very uncomfortably into this creepy person. So I think that you could reside somewhere in that because they're on the line between literary and full-on thriller. But you actually have treated some of these suspenseful elements in your fiction previously. Yeah, that's true. And suspense, of course, is a chapter in Benison Wells' introduction. Suspense has always fascinated me. 
And it's also true that as one finds in Edgar Allan Poe, you know, we think of Edgar Allan Poe as the author of the first detective story, Murders in the Room or whatever, but he was also deeply interested in telepathy, as was Arthur Conan Doyle. The relationship between telepathy and detective fiction is one of the subjects that I discuss in telepathy and literature, especially in Raymond Chandler. So yeah, it's not as if I haven't thought about it, but I still feel semi-illiterate. And I don't know if you've played with this or maybe having one of your characters or your detective having elements of telepathy or a vision or these kind of mysterious things where the answer comes to them. I don't know if that's something you like to experiment with. Well, I think novels, especially, you know, fiction, narrative fiction is about mind reading. And in that sense, any novel is a detective novel. The first chapter of Telepathy in Literature is about Jane Austen's Emma in part as a detective novel. And it's a detective novel, I think, especially in that sense of establishing mind reading as not just something that is going on in the book, but something that every reader has to do. It's not surprising, it seems to me, that telepathy and detective fiction are so close together historically and culturally. I think there are all sorts of affinities and connections. Indeed. When you think about masterworks or masterpieces or works of genius, I think that the great works of art are those that involve very deeply and on an intuitive level as well, the imagination of the reader or the viewer, and then solving this big puzzle that is never fully exhausted, like you have to return to it to really understand. So it keeps on renewing itself. I think that, that might define it for me, because for me, say if a work of art is just so perfect and it's all sorted out and there's no discovery, then there's no point almost experiencing it. Yeah. And that's one of the conundrums that I'm dealing with, actually. This, I've read various Agatha Christie novels and I love them. She's very, very gifted and she does things that nobody else can do, I think, in precision and the honing of her storytelling. But that whole idea of a kind of whodunit, whatever it might be, was that what it was all about? Is that enough? And I think that's a real question. I'm interested in writing that will go on giving pleasure for as long as possible. I'm interested in thinking in texts that get the reader reflecting on their lives and what we're doing and what we might be doing differently. And so the challenge for me is how to maybe see if there's a way of writing a detective novel that engages the reader at these different levels in different ways. I think she was about Christie. I think that she was definitely a very talented puzzle maker. And I think that's why her books continue to sell and there's continuous adaptations, but maybe also answering all the questions makes you forget about the other things there because you're just trying to solve this puzzle. But I do think it is fascinating, the level of mystery and manners, which Flannery O'Connor said in the future, we'll have a society that does not have mystery and manners, and it'll be hard to create these fictions. So as you go back to Agatha Christie or other authors of that era, you see all these layers and what it tells us about society. And I think that what a lot of crime fiction and mystery fiction does, it, it manages to, in dealing with motive, really tell us a lot about a society at a particular time and space. Indeed, I quite agree with that, Mia. I suppose Frederick Jameson is one of the critics that I've long admired on detective fiction and with this idea of the detective as a figure who brings a society together and in, in some way or other suggests a possible community, a way of thinking socially about a large group of people. And that's an ever moving thing. You know, Highsmith's The Blunderer, which I just finished reading yesterday, which I thought was terrific. Everything in that book is so historic. You know, th that's not how you go to a movie theater. That's not how you arrest somebody. That's not how you conduct a criminal investigation. Nothing in the book is of our time. And yet, of course, it's both deeply revealing of the 1950s when Highsmith was writing it, and it's deeply suggestive of how things are now, however different they are. Yes. And I think what's interesting about her amorality of her fiction was a bit ahead of its time. And I think Jim Thompson and a few other writers at that time were addressing it. And I think that it was 
uncomfortable because the established genre was the mystery fiction and thrillers where there was a sense of morality and everything gets set right in the end. And so it's comforting, even though, you know, Agatha Christie, these are like gentlemen parlor room murders and everyone goes home and has a cup of tea and scones at the end. Highsmith really makes you look at things straight at the eye and it's a little bit more real. So, I mean, having enjoyed your other fictions and the suspenseful elements in it, I'm really looking forward to seeing this other exploration of thriller writing. And I know you'll add the many literary elements in it as well. Thank you. Well, I'll have a go, but it sounds like I need to read Jim Thompson. So thank you for that suggestion. Well, the killer inside me is kind of frightening. You might not want to read it right before going to bed. Indigo, I believe you have another question. Yes, I was curious how... You mentioned that there are these sort of evolving moralities throughout these detective works. I'm curious if you think that the moralities and this method of, for example, developing suspense evolves differently throughout different genres. Well, suspense is something which characterizes the sentence that I'm enunciating at the moment. Suspense is there in all poetry, in every sentence, in rhythm, in syntax and and the possibilities of grammar or holding up grammar. And one of my favorite rhetorical figures, which is a key figure, it seems to me, for David Bowie, actually, is Aposiopesis. That's to say the rhetorical figure for an unfinished sentence or statement. Sorry, I was having fun there. As I do at some length in in the book, in fact, Aposiopesis and suspense. These are, you know, an ancient Greek thing. So in some ways, our interest, our concern with suspense, it goes back millennia. Language has this capacity. Language does this thing with the unfinished, with the incomplete, the fragmentary, the still seeking, the in process, to come back to that word process, which is partly what I love about the figure of veering, about which I haven't said anything, but I'm Perhaps we'll save that for another time. But I think suspense is something which, for me, is created through the encounter in writing and works at the level of every sentence, because I don't know how I'm going to end my sentences from one sentence to the next, which is what makes writing for me very anguishing, but also inevitably exciting, sometimes very exhilarating. But suspense is there in all writing for me and in all speech. In ZU, it can change the way we experience time and our memory and draw it out or compress it and make us feel all these things. But why don't you go a little bit? I was going to ask you about teachers that are important to you, reflections that are important to you as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving. The next generation, I think that relates a little bit to veering and the roots of veering, uh, virer en français. Uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit? I know it's been a word that returns to you often in your reflections and writing. Yeah, I mean, you're right to to note the French, which was how I got started with it. Just thinking about what is this word veering? It's, oh, veering, it's in the word environment. That's what an environment is. That's what environment means. It means something that is veering. Right? So Veering is, of course, about desire, about thinking. And in some ways, I think inevitably it's about perversity. I mean, the veer in perverse, the veer is in perverse, right? Perverse is a veering. We're all perverse. We're all perverse animals. We're all veering. And veering is something that isn't confined to humans. So horses veer. Horses have been veering in English since the 17th century. Tortoises veer. In D.H. Lawrence, I don't know if you know the cover of the book, Veering, but it's a photograph of a Galapagos turtle. And sometimes people look at this turtle and they want to know, well, why is that on the cover? Well, it's veering. Here's a turtle that's veering, because this is not something just confined to humans. And veering always, for me, involves uncertainty. It's a process. It's in the midst, right? And this is what I like about creative process. It's something that is ongoing, light process, veering is unfinished. This is the sort of beauty of the present participle, to be veering. I was, I suppose, just struck by the fact that I'd never really seen that veering is in the word environment. And I started to think about how this word environment is, of course, an anthropocentric word. 
in the sense that literally it means what is turning around us, us humans again, the lords of the earth, right? But of course, that's a fiction. That's a complete fabrication. The environment is not anthropocentric, however much we might like to think it is or talk as if it is. So how might we think about veering as a way of thinking differently about the environment? That was one of the other, I suppose, triggers for writing the book, Veering. Yes, I think that it's, as you say, tradition, I think of it as changing direction. And that's something that we actually need to do. We think that it's just this set path and some people are fatalistic about it, but we can change and we need to learn to adapt because we can't use up, as we're now nearly using up, two planets worth of resources. We're acting as though we have two planets when we just have the one. And so we do have to change. And I think that we're learning. You know, your lifetime as a teacher, you get to meet each subsequent generation. And I feel optimistic knowing their kind of passion and dedication and how seriously they're taking it. And so learning from you, but I feel like I'm also, I feel like we're learning from them and how they'll help lead the way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think our students are the greatest source of inspiration. We learn from them a great deal more than we probably manage to teach them, you know, in many ways. It's an amazing thing to be able to teach. It's a great responsibility, but it's also an enormous opportunity. And although I'm not teaching at the moment, that's why I'm missing it, I suppose. And that impulse, the desire, that is there in teaching to, to talk to people, but also to listen to people is something that I never stop valuing and appreciating. That's beautiful, yes. And of course, you're still teaching through your books and through these conversations. So thank you, Nicholas Royal, for sharing your insights into literature, language, music, memory, creativity, and Mother Nature so that we can tap into our own imaginations and live lives of greater joy, purpose, and meaning. And for also sharing the story of your mother and her life of service and your life of service as an educator and writer. Thank you for adding your voice to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you very much, Mia. The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Indigo Magania with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this episode was Indigo Magania. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your own creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.